Well, happy New Year's Eve. I hope that you had a pleasant Christmas. Christmas can be somewhat stressful for various reasons. I hope that if any of you experienced that, that the glories of who Christ is that we heard last weekend would overshadow that. This season did seem rather odd uh, to me this year, and I couldn't tell you how many people in my life told me that it didn't really feel like Christmas. And many didn't do many customary things. Now, I'm not against doing new things, nor do I believe that we need to enslave ourselves to traditions. But there's something to be said about regular observances, holidays, celebrations, especially for believers. When God formed uh, the nation of Israel, he not only gave them laws, but holidays and festivals and told them when to observe them. They had a liturgical calendar, so to speak, and it was given to remind them of God's work for them. And though, do not, though most of us don't know many Christian holidays beyond Christmas and Easter, the Eastern Orthodox Church, for example, has about 25 days that they celebrate each year. Now, the new year that we observe is not part of that calendar. Interestingly, interestingly though, the Eastern Orthodox Church does celebrate a new year on the 14th day of January, which is interesting parallel because the Jews were told to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. All that being said, the traditions of New Year's often include resolutions of sorts to improve our quality of life. And as Christians, this is never a bad idea. In fact, last year I had the privilege of preaching on New Year's Day, focusing on how we are changed into Christ's likeness by God himself. And then Paul... The following week took us to Hebrews 12, encouraging us to look to Jesus, hoping to push that theme all throughout the year with the necessity of looking to Jesus to persevere. Now, I don't expect you to remember that from a year ago. I had to actually look those up myself to see what we did a year ago. But I wanted to bring that to you today because I thought about the same theme, which is perseverance. If there's ever a resolution for Christians, perseverance, the need to persevere, the resolve to persevere, is a leading one. And the book of Hebrews points us in that very direction. Before I read our passage for this morning, I just want to give you a little bit of context about Hebrews. Some of the key themes that we see in Hebrews is that God speaks in Jesus. God has exalted Jesus as our king, as a son, the one and only son, as our prophet, as our high priest. In fact, the priesthood of Jesus is what he says is the main point of what he was talking about in Hebrews 8.1. His priesthood is what bookends the outer limits of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And we are to look to Jesus. We are to pay attention to what we have heard. We are to consider Jesus and hold fast our confession, knowing that Jesus is our great high priest. He has inaugurated the new covenant in his blood, and it is permanent. So we are to draw near. We're not to refuse him who is speaking. We're to pursue holiness, and we are to persevere. All of these things are in the context of looking to the promises that are fulfilled in Christ, which the author points out by showing how Jesus is greater than all of his predecessor types. Which brings us to our passage for this morning. If you would please stand with me in honor of God's word and turn to Hebrews 3, 
If you don't have a copy of the Bible in your hand, the passage will be on the screens on either side of me. Starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, and indeed, if indeed we hold, fast, hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he repoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You've already heard the theme this morning that our proper response to God's word is not a natural response. We have to have a supernatural work going on in us. Even though every genuine believer in this room is saved, every one of us has the remainder of indwelling sin. This indwelling sin continues to tempt us. It continues to deceive us. It continues to draw us away into the darkness of unbelief, and it threatens our ability to persevere. Now, Hebrews is a challenging book for many believers. 
But this book is all about the work that Jesus has accomplished, that he's finished, so that his people would persevere in faith to the end. The main idea I have for you is, is just this. Jesus has given you an everlasting salvation so that you can persevere in the faith. Jesus has given you an everlasting salvation so that you can persevere in the faith. This morning, I'm going to approach this text a little differently than what we're used to. Rather than walk through the passage once and picking up themes along the way, I'm going to take up the whole thing each time, focusing on different running themes. So I want you to keep your Bibles open and your eyes on the text. And this morning from our text, I want to point out three tools that God has given us to persevere in the faith. The first is that he warns us about the dangers of unbelief. The second is that there is an ever-present promise. And the third is that we have a living word that we need to expose ourselves to. So first, the first tool we have as a means to persevere is a warning against unbelief. Oftentimes when we think about unbelief, we think about atheists or those who have not yet turned to Christ in faith. But this passage is addressed, addresses the potential of unbelief in everyone in this room. It addresses the potential of unbelief for every believer. The interesting thing is that it's a real and present danger. In order to persevere in the faith, each of us must be on guard against unbelief. As we look at the beginning of this passage in your Bibles, you'll see that verses 7 through 11 are set apart in quotations. We actually read this this morning from Psalm 95. It's a little bit different here, but it's the same passage. Psalm 95 is telling a story. Looking at 3.7, he says, Therefore, which is picking up on the truth that he had just explained, that we are God's house. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So the whole section that we're looking at this morning follows that condition. We are his house if we hold fast. Our faith in Christ is what we need to hold fast to. And now the author is putting this as an urgent call when he says today. Today is important. And you can probably tell that it's important to the author because he repeats it four times. Today, we need to hear the warning about unbelief. So let's work our way down from the top. Look again at verses 7 through 10. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So notice in verse 8, he refers to harding your hearts as in the rebellion. Well, what rebellion is he talking about? I don't need to explain this too much because the author points this out in verses 16 and 17, where he says, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who all left Egypt? If you know your Bibles, you know that this rebellion is recorded in the book of Numbers. You don't need to turn there, but if you're not familiar with the story, brief recap, Israel was just rescued from Egypt. God had done a, a bunch of mighty works to save them, bringing judgments, against the Egyptians, against Pharaoh. God makes a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. 
and calls them his people, instructs them how to live in peace with him. And in a short time, the people began to complain, and the Lord struck some of them. But God continued to be faithful to his promise. He had promised to deliver these people. In time, God commanded men from each tribe of Israel to go spy out the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And after the espionage, the spies bring a report that the land is good, but there are some big and scary guys in there that they don't think they are going to be able to defeat. Only Caleb and Joshua try to encourage the people to say, yes, let's go, God has given it to us. But the key thing is that the people would not listen. Just as the people were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron, God intervenes. He threatens to wipe them out, even. Moses intercedes for them. God relents, but he says and swears an oath. This is in Numbers 14. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. After this, God sends the people to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation is gone, wiped out, perished, except for Caleb and Joshua. That's the rebellion that Hebrews is reminding us of. It may be that you think that the reality of unbelief was just an Old Testament thing because they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do. But the author, I want to remind you, is showing us that this is a warning for today. He is speaking to the church. So as the quotation from the the psalm continues, we see in verses 8 and 9 that the people tested God. They tested God because they didn't believe that he was genuine. They didn't believe that he was going to hold up to his promises. In the second part of verse 9, it says they saw my works for 40 years. In spite of what they had witnessed with their own eyes, they still did not believe. Seeing is not always believing. Our hearts are ruined and broken. God says this very thing in verse 10. He says, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Just as we saw in Genesis 6 and 9 earlier this year, that every intention of the thoughts of men are evil, so it continues that they always go astray in their hearts. And this results in God's wrath. So the exhortation in verse 12 is to take care. Another way to say this is to watch out. Beware. If these people who experienced firsthand the wonders of God's savings acts and still fell away in unbelief, should we not beware of unbelief ourselves? It's called evil in verse 12, and it's evil because it leads us to fall away from the one person who is good, the living God. This is why the author says in verse 13, exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can be really stupid creatures, can't we? And sometimes we can be really prideful creatures. But none of us are immune to having our consciences seared by our own sin or the things that we expose ourselves to. And because we're to exhort one another, he is pointing out that this is a church-wide project. The urgency of today is picked up again in 4.1 when he talks about the promise of entering his rest still standing. But he says we should fear lest we should seem to have failed to have reached it. 
We should fear. What should we fear, though? The brunt of the warning is the potential of falling away from God, of not entering his rest. We'll get to that rest in a moment, but what we see here is that they were, the people of the wilderness generation were not united by faith. We need to see that unbelief also is equated with disobedience in chapter 4. You can see that in verses 6, through, six and 11. Disobedience and unbelief go hand in hand and both lead us to fall away, and which is why we need to take sin so seriously. We need to we seem to be quick about confessing sin generally, but we need to be specific with one another. We need to be specific with God, because each and every sin is a matter of unbelief. Every time we sin, we're telling God that we don't believe that what He has said is good. And each sin is deadly. We need to be lovingly bold with one another when we see sin taking hold. And if someone comes to speak to you about your sin, you better listen. Some implications that I just want to highlight real quick is that some of you here might be thinking that you won't believe unless you see something. Do you think that what is recorded in the Bible is not enough? Jesus tells the story of a rich guy who had that very assumption. He had died and got off to Hades and asked Jesus to send someone to go warn his brothers because if someone rose from the dead, they would believe. Jesus tells them they've got Moses and the prophets. They've got something that's been spoken, that's something that they can read and hear. And he says, if they don't believe that, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. So your unbelief, if you're sitting here not believing this morning, is not a factual problem. It's a moral problem. It's a heart problem. Now, if you are a believer here, where do your doubts reside? Are you even aware of your doubts? If you're sitting here thinking today that you don't really struggle with doubt, I ask you to consider what sin has its tightest grip on you. Because that is where your unbelief lies. What provokes you to sin, what temptation, when you face it, has the most power over you. Or even something as subtle as what do you do to find rest and comfort and pleasure? How do you deal with trials? How do you deal with success? Are any of these things not leading you to Christ, either for comfort or for praise? These are probative questions that we should all be asking ourselves because we all fail. We all fall short. But the good news is that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. So we don't need to be ashamed when we have these feelings of unbelief or battles with sin and temptation. God knows us. Jesus knows us. And he invites us to continually come to him, to find relief in him. You will not easily persevere, though, if you do not do hard battle with unbelief. Battling unbelief is not meant to happen in a vacuum, though. We cannot just identify our sins and areas of doubt and focus on them, mustering all our strength against unbelief and willing ourselves to believe. In order to persevere in the faith, we battle unbelief by remembering and believing the promises that God has made, which is our second tool. Our second tool to persevere in the faith is the ever-present promise of rest. 
That's an ever-present promise of rest. So bring your eyes back up to 3.7. Again, looking at the beginning of our section, I want to highlight again today. Today is not just a day for fighting against unbelief. Today culminates, the warning culminates in not entering God's rest. But we need to keep in mind that the warning is given so that we do not face that judgment. It's helpful to know that this psalm helps lay the context about how to respond to what God has revealed. The author of Hebrews points us back to it so much that it would be a disservice to you not to address it. What we often don't do when we're looking at psalms is understand a context that they're sitting in. Psalm 95 is in the middle of a set, Psalms 93 through 100. And these psalms have been observed to carry on a theme of Yahweh's reign. You don't need to write this down. You don't need to turn that right now. You can do that later if you like. But listen to how these psalms tell the story of God's reign very briefly. Psalms 93 and 94 praise God for his kingship and holiness and his power to defeat his enemies, all with the promise of not forsaking his people, the people that he has promised to rescue. In a similar way, the author of Hebrews has picked this very thing up by showing how exalted the Son of God is as king, as our high priest, of the certainty of his saving work, the intercession that he gives to bring many sons to glory. Psalm 95, then, picks up with this praise as we started with this this morning. And just as the author of Hebrews knows the fickleness and the unbelief of the people, so does this psalm. Then Psalms 96 through 100 exalt God again as the one true God and calls the people to hate evil, right? To hate evil, tying that to what we see of being aware of the evil that's falling away from God and to trust him, to trust God. Sing again of his salvation and how we are the sheep of his pasture. The gentle father, a gentle shepherd. This ends with an invitation to enter his courts with thanksgiving because of his steadfast love enduring forever. That's the context that the Psalms lay, that the author of Hebrews is picking up. So in our passage this morning, he has focused on the need to persevere by striving to enter the rest that God has given to us, the striving to enter the courts that he has called us to, trusting in the Savior's work, the Savior's eternal work, an eternal work of redemption. This is why Hebrews calls us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why does he say this? Because he who promised is faithful. God is the faithful one. We are the unfaithful. Even though we have exercised faith, he's the one who keeps the promise. Today is the day to enter God's rest. And it's available to everyone who believes. Well, what is that rest referring to? Well, in the first point, the warning about unbelief, I pointed out that the rebellious generation was sworn off from entering the land. Right? There's a connection there with the rest being associated with the land that was promised. We see this again in verses 16 and 19, that they didn't enter because of unbelief. They didn't enter the land. So in 3.19, the conclusion is that the rebellious did not enter because of their unbelief, but in verse 4, he says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. 
We are seeing a repetition of the urgency of the warning today, but we're also seeing an opportunity today. Because today, the promise still stands. Or in other words, that rest is still available for everyone here. It's available, as we see in verse 3, for those who have believed enter that rest. And up to this point, the rest implied is the land. But in, in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 3, he starts to refer to a different kind of rest. Do you see that? Look at it. In 4.3, he reminds them of a passage saying they will not enter at rest and ties it to God finishing his works. And then in verse 4, of God resting on the seventh day. The author of Hebrews is making some clear distinctions, but he's also drawing some very strong parallels. So in verse 4, when he says that he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day, I really doubt that the author has no idea where this is. He's like, I remember this from somewhere. I do that all the time. But Hebrews knows what he's, the guy, the guy who wrote Hebrews, I don't know who that is either. But anyways, back on track. He knows, right? But he, I think he's saying this because he wants his audience to have that, oh yeah, moment. In the Hebrew language, there are two different words uh, for rest. There's one that's in Genesis that talks about the Sabbath rest. And there's also the rest of the land. That's a different Hebrew word, but the Greek Old Testament, which was quoted here in Psalm 95, and our English Bibles, we, just in, we translate those words just like the Greek translation of the Old Testament did with one word. So the connection may not have been crystal clear at first, but now Hebrews is pointing that out. He's pointing out that there is a rest associated with the land that is also associated with the Sabbath rest that is introduced in Genesis 2.2. And what's interesting about Genesis and the seventh day, if you remember from Genesis 1, is that the days of creation are all numbered. Every, every one of the days, days 1 through 7, are numbered as, the, as, the, as these days. But numbers 1 through 6, these days are all marked by the phrase, there is a morning and there is evening, indicating an end to that day. The seventh day doesn't have that marker. He just says that God rested. The author of Hebrews it's coming to the same conclusion in 4, 6, and 7 when he says that that rest is still available. It gets a little interesting then when he comes to refer to Joshua 4, 8, or Joshua in 4, 8, going back to a place. But look at what he is saying there. If Joshua had given them rest. Now, Hebrews was written to probably a primarily Jewish audience, and I bet that Jewish audience right now is saying, hold on there, preacher boy. What do you mean if Joshua had given them rest? Listen to this from Joshua 21. This is after Joshua had given conquest and they had occupied the land. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Listen to this. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This seems pretty definitive. The Lord gave them rest. Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord had failed. But the point is that this rest, which was given as a figure in the land, some of you need to hear this, he's making it clear 
that the rest is not bound to the land of Israel. How can I say that? Because Joshua says it, or Hebrews says it, referring to Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And he isn't talking about the reign of Solomon either. Because just as the generation after Joshua fell into idolatry and sin and faced judgment, so did every generation after Solomon, where they eventually ended up in exile. They were surrounded by enemies on every side and faced God's judgment. They were not at rest. The rest that the land gave was temporary, as the history clearly shows, but the rest that's from God is perpetual. It is eternal. It is enduring. Israel was given a Sabbath, a Sabbath day, a day of rest as a sign of the covenant between them that also pointed forward to the reality, looking back to his finished work, but looking forward to what would be eternally enjoyed by them. It was given to represent a greater reality. It served as a shadow of what was to come. How do we enjoy that rest today? Well, I don't think this means that we're supposed to observe the Sabbath or that Sunday is a Christian Sabbath. In fact, Colossians 2.17 makes it clear that the Sabbath was a shadow of the things that have come in Christ. And I think this is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. The rest. Look at Hebrews 3.14. I wish we had time to go through all of Hebrews, but there's enough points in the context here for us to see that being with Christ is our rest because his works were finished at the cross. In 3.14, the author says, we have come to share in Christ. That reference to sharing in Christ looks back a little bit to 3.1, you who share in a heavenly calling, and also to verse 6, that we are his house. Verse 6 connects to 14 with a conditional statement, if we indeed hold fast. And when we, need to think, when we think about God's house, we also need to think about the Jewish background. For these Hebrews, God's house is his temple. It's the place where atonement is made and peace with God is enjoyed because their sins are covered, their sins are removed. And it reflected the peace that Adam and Eve had in the garden before they fell. It pointed ahead to the reality that God would dwell with his people. To be with God, with your sin atoned for, is to be at rest. That rest is available for all of us presently. It's, present, it's available for everyone who has not yet believed, who would believe. We who believe in Jesus Christ enjoy it at the present, and it is ours because we have believed and we have entered into the new covenant that Jesus has given us. But we're also told in verse 11 that we need to strive to enter that rest so that we do not fall. So how do we strive for what has already been attained? Well, over and over, the author of Hebrews reminds the church that the work of Christ is complete. From the language of sitting at God's right hand to the certainty of God's promise being fulfilled in the priesthood of Jesus, the eternal and perpetual intercession that Jesus makes for us the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection to being the mediator of a new covenant that offers us a full forgiveness of sins. That's what he reminds us for, reminds, of, reminds us of. And therefore, because all of that is true, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. 
We look to Jesus, not from afar, but we draw near to him. Jesus told those who are heavy laden and who labor to come to him to find rest for their souls. And it's a joyous, satisfying rest, but it's also a working rest. Now, wait a minute, Jeremy, you might be thinking, what in the world is a working rest? That doesn't make any sense. Well, when we consider what this passage is warning us about, we certainly ought not to think that I can sit back and relax. Why is that? Because a a war for your heart is going on right now. Like I said at the beginning, we are plagued by sin and voices in this world that would draw us away from God. How easily are we all swept away? Sometimes it's like we're fish swimming downstream. So we don't relax. We have to strive to enter the rest. We need to wrestle off the weights and the sin that clings so closely so that we can run with endurance. Running to the one who is seated on the throne. Faith is hard because life is hard. We toil. We suffer. We get overwhelmed by the evil in and around us. We are tempted to give up, just like these Hebrews apparently were tempted. We're tempted to give up because we have started to believe the lie that we find rest in what the world offers us. But we know that that's not true, don't we? We know that the rest that the world offers is temporary and does not ultimately satisfy. And if we seek rest in things that would just give us sinful pleasure, we ultimately find out that it's exhausting. Like we read this morning, Jesus is preparing a final rest for us. The author of Hebrews refers to this as a lasting city that is to come. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here we come back around to that rest being associated with the place, and that place is where God will dwell with his people forever. It's the place that Jesus has gone to prepare to make a place for us. And it's a place of perpetual Sabbath rest because God will deal, dwell with us in his eternal kingdom. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. And we need to hold on to that promise in order to persevere in the faith. We do this by remembering that God has provided it in his son. It is his rest. This is mental work and it is heart work. We need to do the thinking that's required to take what is written, to take what is spoken, to take what is sung, and apply it to our hearts. And we also need to see that this is a work that does not look at ourselves, that doesn't look at how well we do with our spiritual disciplines. It's always looking to the one who provides the grace in those disciplines. We need to combine the hearing of this good news, the good news of this rest with faith. In other words, we need to trust God. If you're not someone who has placed your trust in God this morning, you need to hear that this rest is available for you. His death and resurrection that Jesus accomplished secures your salvation if you would turn away from your false hopes and look to the one who provides the only salvation that you could ever enjoy. Otherwise, you will not enter his rest. In 
In order to persevere in the faith, we need to be on guard against unbelief, but we must hope also in the promise of entering his rest. And for these things, we need the living word of God, which is our third point. The third tool that you have to help you persevere in the faith is the word of God. And you must be hearing the word of God with faith in order to persevere. Hearing when God is speaking is what the author of Hebrews emphasizes since the opening of his letter. God has spoken to us through the prophets and now in the Son. He speaks to show that the Son is superior to the angels and to Moses. We are to pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Jesus speaks or he speaks of Jesus' death as the means of God's glory, of Jesus' glory in our salvation. And in our passage this morning, he is speaking about hearing his voice. So again, in 3.7, today, all of this has to do with today. God's work is happening today. God's word is vital today in the fight against unbelief, and it is vital for you to strive to enter God's rest. Again, walking through the passage, I just want to point out to you this time how much the word of God is emphasized. In verse 7, we have the speech of the Holy Spirit, and we are called to pay attention to when we hear it. That same phrase is repeated again in verse 15. In verse 16, we have a reference to those who heard. In 4.1, we have a reference to the promise, which is contained in the word. In verse 2, we see a reference to the good news. Again, the message being heard that message which some listened to and others did not. In verse 4, God spoke of the seventh day. In verse 5, God said they will not enter his rest. In verse 7, God is speaking his word through David. And again, the call today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, God spoke of another day after Joshua. Hebrews begins and ends with God speaking. It begins and ends with reminders about who is speaking and how we should respond, which gives us context for Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The reason I laid all that out for you is because in my own experience, this verse has been ripped from its context and used for various reasons. I wouldn't say that they're twisting it necessarily, but its lack of context has prevented me from seeing it for what it is. Typically, I've only seen this verse used in systematic theology contexts. For example, it has been used to prove it's been used to prove that we are made up of three different parts, body, soul, and spirit, because the soul and the spirit are divided here. Well, that's not the point of this passage. If you're curious about that, Wayne Grudem has a, a nice article about it in his, in his uh, theology book. It's also been used as a defense for scripture, which is a little bit closer to where we're going, but again, not quite right. Because they, they point out that it's active, right? It's a word that's always at work. It's a word that will always accomplish the purposes that God has for it, which is good. That's true. God's word is always at work. But that's not the point of why it's here. It is able to judge. Now, this is a little bit closer to the mark, and so is the idea that it's able to convict. 
Sometimes also, this verse is used to show that God's word is a means of sanctification. Also true, also good, but not the point here. When we look at Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 in context, we are being told why. Why we should strive to enter God's rest and avoid unbelief and disobedience. And the reason is because the word is an active judge. There is nothing about us that is hidden or cannot be exposed. None of us can hide. It is a living sword of judgment. Now you're sitting here thinking, well, thank you, Jeremy. That sounds very encouraging. I thought this guy was going to give us a tool for perseverance. Well, it certainly is a tool. God's word, his living word, is a tool, but it serves two purposes. The purpose that we're used to is that God's word tells us of the gospel. It's the words of eternal life. It tells us of God's saving work. It tells us of the supremacy of God, the Son, that he rules forever. It's a word that tells us that Jesus is bringing many sons to glory through his death and resurrection. It tells us that he has destroyed the power of death and the devil, and that he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's what we're used to hearing about it. But God's word also serves another purpose, which is the purpose of this passage, And it's to warn us that ultimately it will judge us if we are not holding fast to the one who saved us. And this warning, just like every other warning in Hebrews, is to ensure the perseverance of his people. Some of you sitting here are familiar with the doctrines of grace, or it's what's commonly called Calvinism. We affirm that the Bible teaches that God clearly is sovereign in salvation, that everyone who is born again is saved eternally. Romans 8.30, a key verse, says, and those whom he, God, predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Certain acts, beginning to end. John 6.37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If this is true, why the warnings about falling away? If we read Hebrews and just let it speak for itself, we see that Hebrews is talking to believers. He refers to them as holy brothers, to those who share in a heavenly calling. He's addressing those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. He speaks to those who have received forgiveness of sins. Some people think this is just talking to almost Christians. Well, the people that aren't really believers need to hear these warnings so that they'll get in, get in gear and, and put their faith in Christ. But that's not, that's not what's going on here. He is addressing us The most urgent audience for this message is the church, to real believers. The author even includes himself as one who needs to fear, as one who needs to hold fast. The warning, which is part of the whole message of Hebrews, helps us to keep following Jesus. That's the main point because he's our high priest. 
And what's important to remember is that the warnings are always effective in those who are chosen by God. They're the means that God uses to keep us trusting him, to keep us looking to Jesus, to see the terrible consequences of not following him, while at the same time presenting the finished work that he has done. So you need to hear the word and respond in faith. You need to hear of the promises and the warnings. The promises will lead you to the sun in confidence and the warnings will lead you to the sun and for comfort. And since the warning of falling away is today, and the promise of entering his rest is for today, the time for you to hear God's word is today. The reason that Christians are encouraged to read their Bibles every day, can you see why? We can fall away. So please read your Bible. Read it regularly and orderly. Read it slowly and thoroughly. It's an active word that will keep you from falling away. Promises and warnings. Hear it with faith. Let the word of God do surgery on you. Let it expose your doubts and fears, your temptations, your sins, your trials. Let it expose everything that keeps you from drawing near to Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the God, the Son incarnate and our great high priest, has offered himself without blemish to God and purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He knows we're weak. He knows we're troubled. He knows we're doubting. And he calls on us only to believe, to persevere. And you will persevere if you watch out for unbelief, you remember his promises, and expose yourself to the word responding in faith. I can't come up with better words to close, so I'm just going to give you Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a high Great high priest, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we give you great praise because you are a God who has spoken to us. You have spoken to us in so many ways, but ultimately you have spoken to us in your Son. And through your Son's apostles, you have spoken to us to tell us to open up to us the works that the Son has accomplished, his finished works that he has accomplished. We confess that we indeed have doubts that plague us, sins and temptations that haunt us, but we know that you are God who saves, that you are God who's given your word to call us, 
to sanctify us, to warn us, and to keep us. And we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit's help to persevere in faith. We know that you will do this because you have said that you will. But at the same time, we know that you have called us to exercise faith. So help us not to be lax. Help us not to take our salvation for granted, but to continually come to you for our salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen.